Hello, and welcome to the Orthopod. My name is Liam Fernando Canavan. I'm a medical student at the University of Melbourne, and this is a podcast where I'll take a history from experts in orthopaedic and musculoskeletal medicine. Dr. Avanti Mandalason was born and raised in the UK to Sri Lankan parents and moved to Australia to complete her medical degree at Monash University, graduating in 2004. In 2014, Dr. Mandalason finished her training as an orthopaedic surgeon in Australia and then went on to complete fellowships in upper limb surgery at the Wrightington Hospital in England and in microsurgical reconstruction at Ganga Hospital in India. In addition to her work at the Austin Hospital, Monash Health and private practice providing specialist surgical care in hand and upper limb surgery, Avanti is also the Victoria and Tasmania representative of the Australian Orthopaedic Association's Orthopaedic Women's Link. Welcome to the Orthopod, Dr. Mandalayson. Thanks very much, Liam. Thanks for the invitation. So you've had quite a journey towards becoming a doctor. What was it like growing up in the UK and then coming to Australia for your medical training? And what made you want to be an orthopaedic surgeon? Yeah, it's been an interesting journey. I think experiencing different countries, health systems, cultures have all uh, added to my perspective uh, in the way I practice, uh, both in public and private. The UK obviously has a national health service, which is um, a free healthcare system for all, very little private um, private healthcare there. So the impact of subspecialty exposures and its ability to have private practice is not a major consideration. The, the nature of the work in public incorporates you know, high-level athletes as well as um, you know, the poorest of the population. So it truly is this sort of socialist uh, healthcare system, which has its good and bad, I guess. But as medical students, you get exposed to it all, which is great, the, the full spectrum of healthcare. When I moved to Australia, and I moved for family reasons, my extended family, my mum's side of my family were all over here, and we'd been coming out on holidays probably for about 10 years, since the late 80s, on holidays, and kind of figured that it was a, a nice place to be and fits our lifestyle and close to family and family support. So that was the impetus to move. So it was a very elective reason, and I organised a transfer of my medical degree from Nottingham University and applied to every single medical school in Australia, asking them if they'd accept my pre-existing training. And then um, Monash was the only one that sort of recognised my my previous two and a half years. And so I transferred into fourth year of med, completed a six-year degree here. Coming from a five-year degree, I ended up doing five and a half years of medical school. Uh, I was very fortunate to have a group of peers that welcomed me into their year group because it's obviously very difficult, um, but they were extremely welcoming of me into their, their social network as well as their learning opportunities. So I feel very grateful for, for that cohort of 2014 where I graduated from. And then getting used to the healthcare system. I, I still doubt I've been here almost, uh, well, 16, 17 years now, and I still think I'm, I, I don't understand fully the Australian healthcare system. I'm trying to navigate it for my patients and still finding out new ways in which they can access um, the best and most efficient way to access the health service. So it's confusing certainly um, for Australians and for outsiders coming in even more so. And and during your training, I mean, was it in medical school that you realised orthopaedics was what you wanted to do? 
Not at all. Never even crossed my mind, if I, if I had to be honest. Uh, it was always interesting, you know, very practical. You know, I enjoyed everything. I'm, I'm the kind of person that sort of was intrigued by the human body, whether it be physiology, biochemistry, anatomy. I enjoyed it all and was only really at the end of my training in my final year at Monash where we had uh, the options of picking selectives uh, and pre-internship where I thought, okay, well, what, what do I want out of life? How can I balance all the other things outside of medicine plus my passion for medicine? My parents, my dad's a, a physician, and he sort of said, well, think about, do you want to be getting up in the middle of the night? Do you want to be, um, you know, leaving your kids at home with a nanny or this, that and the other? And so I, I thought I'd try out all the lifestyle specialties. <laughs> so I, I looked at ophthalmology, I looked at anaesthetics, and then thought I might as well learn a bit of practical stuff in gen med and, and things like that. But yeah, I really thought I'd go down one of the lifestyle specialties. Um, but uh, when I did anaesthetics as a a selective, I spent more time on the other end of the blood-brain barrier and uh, thought anaesthetics is def definitely not for me. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't know when I finished medical school. I just kept my mind open. I still didn't know whether physician route or surgical route. It was so, so open to me. And it was really in my intern year where I did my gen surge term at Box Hill and did gen med. I enjoyed gen med as well, but certainly surgery was the draw card the, the unit there let me you know get my hands dirty doing bits of lap collies and things like that and I think I was hooked at that stage also the ability to focus in on a task and not have nurses handing you to rewrite drug charts and you know write up fluid orders when you're engrossed in operation that level of respect for your your task at hand um, I thought yeah this is for me so what are some of the skills that you think uh, a good surgeon possesses uh, I think communication is such an important one. It's so cliched, but if you cannot communicate what the problem is to your patient at a level that they can understand and be empowered with their decision-making, talk them through and walk them through the journey that it, it takes to understand what their options are and what's most suitable for them, and then, uh, and, and then basically reassure them and support them through that process. Whatever your outcome, if you cannot do that, it will be a failure in the eyes of the patient. So I mentioned earlier that you're the Victoria and Tasmania representative of the Australian Orthopaedic Association's Orthopaedic Women's Link, and that's something I'd really like to talk about a bit more, specifically because each year about 3,000 medical students graduate in Australia, and 50% of those graduates are women. However, there's an obvious gender inequity in Australian surgeons. The most recent 2021 Medical Board of Australia registration statistics from only a couple of months ago show that 13.4% of surgeons are women. So in your role as the Australian Orthopaedic Association's OWL representative, from your perspective, is the Australian Orthopaedic Association doing enough to support and encourage women into a career in orthopaedic surgery? Look, it's a really interesting question and I didn't think too much about numbers and percentages before I took on this role about four years ago. As a woman coming through, uh, yes, you're sort of aware that there are not many other females and that's probably also why as a medical student I never seriously considered it as a career, even as an intern, because there weren't those visible role models. There was this stereotype that it was a, a man's specialty because of the nature of the workforce that it, in, it encompassed. 
uh, as well as, I guess, the long-held stereotypes from other people within medicine that it is a carpenter's job. Um, when I took on this role, I, I realised all the unconscious biases at play that occur uh, within medicine and also within orthopaedics. And if I look back at my journey, it, were, it was the male role models and consultants who really encouraged me. They saw an interest, uh, an enthusiasm, an ability p perhaps as a resident and as a registrar and gave me opportunities, gave me avenues to discuss my career progression and provided me with examples, I guess, of other women who were of similar stature, who have gone on to lead very successful orthopaedic careers. And I feel very fortunate to those male role models. And the Orthopaedic Association has recognised the importance of male champions. Um, I'm not sure of the name of the council. I think it's the Diversity Council of Australia that championed the use of male champions of change, that change will not occur with just women promoting gender equity, but it needs to come from men, strong men, and men in leadership positions standing beside women. And I think the Australian Orthopaedic Association, in answer to your question, has done a phenomenal amount with very strong male leaders in our CEO and our presidents in championing this issue of obvious gender inequity. Uh, out of all the surgical specialties, um, orthopaedics has probably the least favourable percentage of women and there is a clear understanding that it's not just the nature of the work that uh, has not attracted women, that there are probably biases in play that have stopped, uh, been a barrier to progression. The things that the Orthopaedic Association have done to try and raise the visibility of this issue is to uh, engage with medical students and junior doctors in the form of um, national workshops which have included male and female um, facilitators to try and get them engaged in the nature of orthopaedics, uh, provide them an opportunity to discuss uh, some of the myths behind uh, a career in orthopaedics uh, and ways in which different, um, different women have navigated those challenges in their paths before them. Other things that have been done by the Orthopaedic Association are to try and um, have equal numbers of women and men on selection panels to try and reduce the influence of um, unconscious bias, uh, as well as have a, having people from outside the specialty on the, the interview panel as well. Uh, raising awareness certainly for unconscious bias training amongst the membership. Lots of research has been done to collaborate uh, with sister um, organisations, orthopaedic associations around the world. Uh, past um, uh, Orthopaedic Women's Link Chair in Jennifer Green has done an immense amount of work with international um, networking and has formed the International Orthopaedic Diversity Alliance, collaborating with the US and who has recently had their first female AAOS, which is the American Academy of Orthopaedic uh, Surgeons President and now in the next British Orthopaedic Association president is also female. They've had previous uh, president, female presidents in the past. And we are ex extremely excited to have our first female Australian president, in Annette Hollian, um, who will be leading the association um, come our national meeting in October. We're meeting at the Austin Hospital and one of the buildings is the Lance Townsend building. And um, Lance Townsend, Sir Professor Lance Townsend, was 
I think, I'm pretty sure, but the inaugural president of the Royal Australian College of Obstetrics and Gynaecology way back when surgeons that were wanting to do that area of specialty had to go over to a UK to train and then come to Australia once they finished their specialty training. And at the time, the entire college was, was met. Nowadays, the statistics show that about almost 90% of trainees in obstetrics and gynaecology are women. Now, that's perhaps an extreme swap in terms of the numbers, but could orthopaedics learn from a specialty like obstetrics and gynaecology to encourage women into the area of of training? Definitely. Um, I think, you know, certainly having perspectives like your own outside of orthopaedics provides a fresh lens in which you can see the landscape of medicine. And I agree that obstetrics is an extremely demanding professional career, you know, waking up in the middle of the night, deliveries happening at any time of the day, uh, high-risk procedures. Um, So it's certainly not the nature of the work or the the lifestyle impact, I think, that deters women. Uh, And the College of Surgeons um, conducted a Breaking Barriers to Surgery survey couple of years ago, a few years ago now, and there are certainly barriers for people entering a a career in surgery, but there are also significant drivers, and I think obstetrics and gynaecology have identified their drivers and promoted them and reduced their barriers. So the lack of flexibility in uh, being able to complete their training program, job sharing, taking time off, things like that, with the knowledge that when you finish your training, you are the master of your own destiny and you can run your professional life however it suits you. And I, th- I think certainly in orthopaedics, we have moved to um, trying to support flexibility in training. It is now part of accreditation of accredited training posts that hospitals with three or more training positions need to offer flexible training as an option. Uh, and that's significantly supported amongst um, a lot of the training hospitals that I work at. So one of the other hospitals that you've been to is the Ganga Hospital in India, which is where you did a fellowship in microsurgical reconstruction. Now, again, focusing on the Austin, this is about, I think, 657 beds last time I counted, and Ganga's about the same. However, Ganga has 36 operating theatres and specialises only in orthopaedic trauma and plastic surgery. So it would have been a pretty exciting place to do a fellowship there. What was that like? Oh, it was phenomenal. Um, my background is Sri Lankan and Tamil uh, background, and Ganga is in the state of Tamil Nadu, so it speaks Tamil. And I, I made a decision. It was on my way back from the UK where I was doing fellowship um, back to Australia that I, I broke journey in, in Ganga. Um, and I made a decision after living in the West and growing up in the West my whole life that I'd uh, take on the South Indian ways and went to work every day in a sari and often got mistaken at the door. Don't come in. You've got to wait in the patient line, you know, which was, I, I don't know if it was a compliment or, or otherwise, but I certainly looked the part. Um, but really enjoyed immersing myself in the culture. In terms of the work, it is nothing like I'd ever seen before. The hospital purely dealt with trauma and the sequelae of trauma. And as you said, plastics and orthopaedics. It's run by two brothers, uh, one an orthopaedic surgeon, the other a plastic surgeon, and they've built this from the ground up. Um, it is a purely private hospital. And interesting in a climate, you know, socio-economic climate like India, how a private hospital like this can work for trauma. And I saw the backgrounds of the working and... Um, 
Professor Sabapathy, who was the, the head of the, the plastics unit there, who was also the past president of the International Federation of the Surgical Societies of the Hand, IFSSH, gave me a lot of time to explain how the system worked. Uh, and it really uh, relied on the dedication of the senior clinicians of the hospital. It didn't rely on administrators. Um, when patients came in, they were literally scooped up off the road or off the factory floor, wherever there is a road trauma and industrial trauma were the biggest sources of injuries there. And then everyone in the sort of South Indian region knew that's where you get taken if you have a bad injury like this. So not the public hospital, not any other private hospital to, to Ganga. Um, they come, they get taken straight to theatre, they bypass emergency, um, and essentially the anaesthetist gives them a block to, to the arm and um, from that stage, the senior surgeon does a debridement in the anaesthetic holding bay with the arm anaesthetised, makes a very quick assessment, so litres and litres of water to, to debride and to clean contaminated wounds, and then an immediate discussion goes to be had with the family. The family understand what the, what the nature of the injury is, um, the impact of their disability if left untreated, and then the surgical reconstructive options. It then, if the family can afford, uh, depending on what the family can afford and what the role of the individual is to the family and to the village, it then goes maybe to the village to see if they can crowdfund, you know, in modern terms, and then they decide what the reconstructive option will be. And then with all within the space of sort of half an hour to an hour, a decision is made based on cost, based on functional demands of the patient, and based on the society needs of that individual. Um, and then things get done. So grossly contaminated wounds get debrided and reconstructed all at the same time, whereas if you go to most major Western institutions, that doesn't happen because of the lack of availability of early access to theatre, definitive repair and reconstruction by the appropriate surgeon does not always happen um, in the Western world, whereas the dedication of these people means they have excellent outcomes and patients are very happy um, in the most part. Wow, that's amazing. And you were doing what sounds like microsurgical stuff there. What does microsurgery mean? So microsurgery refers to the reconstruction or, or um, ability to restore continuity of arteries and nerves and veins to restore perfusion and sensation and function to the limb. So that's done using a microscope um, and it can involve restoring digits that have been amputated um, where nerves and arteries are the size of you know, a millimetre in diameter and you're using uh, sutures the size of less than the diameter of your hair or my hair to repair the walls and restoring flow um, or bigger vessels further up the arm which may be three or four millimetres in diameter. Perhaps an example might be something like carpal tunnel syndrome. Can you explain how you fix something like that and especially how do you avoid damaging the median nerve? Yeah, so carpal tunnel is our most common um, hand operation and condition that we see certainly in the Western world. We don't use microsurgical techniques for carpal tunnel surgery. It, it is uh, a compressive neuropathy, which means that the median nerve that goes through a fixed space formed by the carpal bones on the floor and the transverse carpal ligament on the roof 
move either through overcrowding with bulky swollen tendons, which also go through that same space, or by thickening of the lining of the transverse carpal ligament can cause pressure on the nerve. And that can lead to often symptoms of pain and tingling and numbness in the thumb to middle fingers. Uh, And in more severe cases, it can lead to weakness of the muscles in the the thinner eminence, which can lead to functional uh, problems with opposing the thumb. So so rather than using microsurgical techniques, we're releasing the transverse carpal ligament to create more space in the carpal tunnel to relieve pressure from the nerve. Okay, so while we're on the subject of the hand, and apologies to any French-speaking listeners for my pronunciation, but I wanted to ask you about Dupuytren's contracture and Dequavain tendinopathy. So both of these disorders are pretty common, but their cause is unknown. Why is that? So de Quervain's um, refers to the first extensor compartment of the wrist. It's on the radial side, on the thumb side of the wrist, and it's often an overuse injury. To say the cause is unknown, it often, as I said, is an overuse problem where the tendons become swollen. It leads to a cycle of change where the tendons get stuck in the extensor retinaculum, um, and the retinaculum gets thickened and it creates this vicious cycle. Um, And so similar to carpal tunnel, um, instead of releasing the space for the nerve, we're releasing more space for the tendons to glide in that tunnel, that fixed space. Dupuytren's is truly a mystery. <laughs> well, it's a mystery to me, and I, I still think it's a mystery uh, unless I haven't kept up with the most late, latest research to, to most of the, uh, the medical world. Uh, but it, it is an iatrogenic or an unknown cause of why um, the, the gristle tissue underneath the palm tends to thicken and contract and cause a curling of the finger down into the palm. There's a strong uh, genetic component, uh, which was previously thought to be linked to the the Vikings. That has since been disproven, but it tends to be much more common in the sort of white European uh, descent populations. But yeah, we've tried lots of different things, and uh, we did have a technique where injecting a, a form of form of Botox or collagenase was a way in which you could dissolve the disease and straighten up the finger without major surgery. Unfortunately, due to cost reasons, that was not been uh, not been available for the last 12 to 18 months now but uh, unfortunately it means unzipping the finger and taking out all that uh, diseased tissue to straighten up the finger yeah well while we're um we're going pretty deep into the anatomy of the hand here one of my favorite landmarks is the anatomical snuff box mm-hmm. and aside from having a bizarre name it's the most common site for tenderness in a scaphoid fracture Can you explain why it's so important to assume that scaphoid fractures are present in patients who've fallen onto an outstretched hand? So the scaphoid is an unusual bone because of its blood supply. It has uh, a blood supply which is quite tenuous and has small blood vessels that go from the distal end of the the scaphoid and travels proximally uh, to the proximal pole. Uh, Most scaphoid fractures after a fall on an outstretched hand result in a a waste of scaphoid fracture. That's the most common site. And uh, most patients, this commonly affects young men and who are playing sport or motorbike riders and things like that. And so falls onto an outstretched hand is not an uncommon occurrence for them. And therefore, they will often see it as just a sprain and leave it untreated. But the problem is uh, an untreated um, scaphoid fracture will lead to movement across the fracture site, which can then disrupt the blood supply, that can affect healing, and long-term, that can affect the functioning of the wrist 
and the, uh, by altering the biomechanics of the, the eight bones that form the carpus uh, or the wrist. And how do you how do you identify a scaphoid fracture other than just it being perhaps a little bit tender? So having a low threshold of concern um, or awareness that if there is tenderness, a simple x-ray is often the first step that will pick these things up. If you're in the emergency department and if that is normal, which it can be in the first week for an undisplaced fracture, but if someone has tenderness in in the anatomical snuff box, then placing them in a cast for immobilisation until they can be referred to the fracture clinic would be prudent. And at that stage, if they have a repeated examination and ongoing tenderness, then either a CT scan or an MRI scan to definitively exclude uh, a scaphoid fracture is what's often required. And if there was a fracture, how would you fix it? If it's undisplaced, more than 90% of them can go on to heal with just a cast immobilisation for six to eight weeks. But uh, even a millimetre of displacement can signify that the fracture is actually unstable um, and has a higher risk of developing a non-union, even with cast immobilisation. And therefore, the options will often be discussed with the patient of offering them um, internal fixation. We do that by placing screws inside the bone called intramedullary screws, uh, which are wholly buried in the bone and that can stay in there long term. That provides stability from the inside and gives us the, the ability to then get patients moving rather than keeping them still for six to eight weeks. So recently I spoke with Dr Julia Kirby about an injury that affects thousands of AFL footballers across Australia, ACL rupture. For the other major sport in Australia, which is probably cricket, what are some of the things that you would see here in Australia that require surgical intervention? Well, I'm not a surgery to the stars, <laughs> so um, you'd probably have to speak to someone who's affiliated with the professional um, cricketing clubs. But certainly a common cricket or uh, football or basketball injury that I see is the mallet finger where ball strikes can occur at the tip of the finger and forces the finger, the, the DIP joint or distal interphalangeal joint into flexion, and that can pull off the extensor tendon from the back of the, the finger, and that can lead to a, a dropped finger. Probably That in itself is not a major functional debility um, or disability. Probably more disabling than that is the fracture dislocation of the, the next knuckle down, the proximal interphalangeal joint. Uh, and these can be severe injuries that can be unrecognised for quite some weeks, again, because they get passed off as a jarred finger or a sprain and left untreated. Um, I just saw a chap yesterday with exactly the same thing, football, now two months down the track, and he's got no movement at that knuckle. And the X-ray and the CT scan clearly shows that the finger is still dislocated and he's fractured about 70% of the base of the middle phalanx, and this requires reconstruction. Unfortunately, you can't uh, then piece things back together at this late stage, and what you, what we're doing for him is taking a bit of bone and cartilage from the base of the, the little and the ring finger, and then using that to place um, or replace the parts that have been fractured in the past. Uh, that gives good pain relief. It allows restoration of range of motion and saves the joint from being either replaced or fused, which in a young patient, especially a sport, sports person, can have sig- significant impact. Mm, so perhaps the best advice is if you're going to catch the ball, make sure you catch it and don't get hit on the fingers. <laughs> um, 
I, I did want to sort of draw towards shoulders, um, specifically because at the moment in, in my training, we're learning about shoulder exams. And in doing so, I've discovered there's about 41 different, what they call provocative shoulder exams. How can there be so many? Like, is there, is, should I just not even worry about learning these? Or is there, I mean, how do you assess a shoulder as a specialist? Do you do 41 different tests? I'm guessing you probably don't. <laughs> Liam, yeah. I don't know if you're asking the wrong person, but I, I am a minimalist at best. <laughs> so I find that at the end of the day, you're wanting to make a diagnosis and you do the relevant test to allow you to elicit that diagnosis. Sometimes that involves just talking to the patient and maybe just a single test to confirm what your differential diagnosis after taking the history Sometimes it's much more subtle than that and you have to do four or five different special tests plus investigations for you to get to that diagnosis. So, for example, um, shoulder instability, perhaps, you know, as, as a throwing athlete, someone who throws from the outfield in cricket or um, even a swimmer who's swimming freestyle, you know, the, the motion around the shoulder is significant um, and that results from the mismatch, the gross mismatch in the shape of the glenoid, which is fairly small compared to the large humeral head, which is deepened and made more stable by the glenoid labrum. So different uh, levels of impact and the direction, differences in direction of force that the shoulder encounters can cause injury to the labrum without an obvious dislocation. A dislocation on the field is often remembered by the patient and also recalled by um, onlookers. So that diagnosis is often easy. But subtle instability episodes can either cause an inferior labral tear, posterior labral tear, slap tear, all these different terms that relate to different parts of the labrum and will often need you to bring out these different tests, the O'Brien's test, the Wrightington posterior shoulder instability test, the anterior draw, the posterior draw, the load and jerk all those different types of tests, they are essentially pushing the humeral head into different parts of the glenoid to try and figure out from an anatomical base thinking which part of the anatomy has been injured. Um, so in answer to your question, do you need to know all those 41 tests? No. <laughs> Good. But <laughs> if you know your anatomy and you know how to load up different parts of the anatomy, whether you know the test doesn't really matter but some basic ones like knowing how to test the rotator cuff with an empty can or a Job's test, um, belly press test for subscapularis, um, anterior draw or apprehension test for anterior shoulder instability, some basic tests like that for each major group of injuries like rotator cuff pathology, anterior shoulder instability or dislocations um, is what I think is a good starting point. Okay. That's very good advice. Thank you. You've <laughs> saved me a lot of time. So lastly, the Orthopaedic Women's Link are running an essay competition for female medical students, interns and pre-vocational doctors not yet on the training program. The competition runs for all of August and the topic this year is Give a Girl a Hammer. What does the title of Give a Girl a Hammer mean to you? It's an interesting topic title, isn't it? Um, I think Give a Girl a Hammer to me is akin to the term... Don't give a man a fish, give the man a fishing net and he will feed his village. And I think for so long people have assumed that women don't want to be given hammers. 
But if you give a girl a hammer, you'll be amazed at what they can do. Awesome. Thank you very much for your time today, Avanti. Thank you, Liam. Thank you for listening to The Orthopod. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by the handle at SomaGradGroup or on our website, somagradgroup.com. See you in the next episode.